Church family, will you take your copy of God's Word and turn to Genesis chapter 4. We will be in uh, Genesis 4 and 5, all both chapters this morning. I know uh, that seems like a lot uh, compared to the amount of Scripture that we generally cover uh, on a Sunday morning. Uh, but as we progress into our series here in Genesis, this will become more of the norm than what we experienced in the first few chapters uh, where we uh, just dealt with uh, several verses at a time. As we get more into the narrative text of what's happening, uh, God unfolding in the first book of the Bible, uh, we will take larger chunks together. Uh, if not, it's going to take us five years to get through Genesis. So uh, we're, we're going to pick up the pace a little because I think that's how the, uh, this text is meant to be approached. Now, we're, we're not going to read all, uh, all of both of the chapters uh, this morning before we preach just for the sake of time. But I will ask you to stand with me. Uh, and if you're in Genesis 4, maybe turn the page over to Genesis 5 because I'm going to read the first five verses this morning uh, at, for the beginning of our sermon before we pray together. This is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them, and he blessed them and named them man when they were created. When Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. The days of Adam after he fathered Seth were 800 years And he had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days that Adam lived were 930 years, and he died. Let's pray together. Our Father and our God, we come to you this morning recognizing that you have communicated truth with us through your holy word. And as we approach a text this morning that in one hand will be very familiar to many and on another will be uh, words, really even an entire chapter that so often we would just scan over quickly without thinking there is true meaning there. Would you help us to know that every word is a gift from you, is true, And is intended, Father, to cut us deeply with your truth. So would your Holy Spirit now work in all of our lives as we think of the generations of Adam this morning, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. Genealogy and the tracing of genealogy has become a big business It's not a new activity for centuries, really millennia, because this text, which contains two genealogical accounts that we'll see this morning, traces back thousands of years. But today, people are fascinated with their history and knowing where they came from, so much so that there are now millions and even billions of dollars to be made in the pursuit Just 10 days ago, Ancestry.com, which is the largest ancestor company in the world, announced that a 75% stake in that that company had been sold. 
for $4.7 billion. Billion with a B. For the movie fans in here, that's more money than George Lucas sold Star Wars to Disney for, which to me is incredible to think that some website started out in Utah, because that's where it's been, was started and owned some, a couple of decades ago, would now be worth over $5 billion because only three quarters of that was sold for 4.7. Why? Why would millions of people subscribe to that website? Why would tens of millions of names be added to that ancestry registry? A very common gift for the last uh, several years for Christmases and birthdays have been DNA tests where people can find out where they are from beyond just a family tree, but we can see country of origin and nationality and ethnicity. People want to know where they came from. People want to know who they are. People want to know what is in their past. And again, this is not new. Throughout history, genealogies have mattered greatly, both to those who write history and to those who look back on it to learn from it. Yet with as important as genealogies have become in our own culture, Oddly enough, this is one of the parts of Scripture that we are so apt to just jump right over until we find another narrative, narrative text that we can read and package really neatly and tie a bow around and, and say, okay, there's, there's truth. Understand something. The two genealogical accounts that we're going to see here in Genesis 4 and 5 are just as important to the story that God is telling us here in the book of Genesis as is the story that begins chapter 4 with Cain and Abel. The narrative account of Cain and Abel and the two genealogies both lead to the same truth. That we can either walk in our own path of sin and experience the judgment of God, or we can, by faith, walk in his righteousness. We are going to see that truth unfold in a narrative way as we see this conflict arise between Cain and Abel and in a historic way as we compare the line of Cain to the line of Adam. And how vastly different those two lines end up. We'll begin with the narrative account, which I'm calling this morning a story of three brothers. You might think for a minute, wait, it's a story of two brothers. It's only Cain and Abel. When we tell this story, we only tell the story of Cain and Abel. But you'll notice when we get to the end of this section that the story does not end with those two brothers. It ends with the birth of the third And without recognizing that the birth of the third is a part of this story, I think we miss the real point of the story itself. Cain and Abel, the story begins, make equal sacrifices to God who accepts one and rejects the other. Look at in Genesis 4, the first five verses. Now Adam knew his wife Eve and she conceived and bore Cain saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord 
And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep and Cain, a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of the fat portions. And the Lord had had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry and his face fell. So the children of Adam and Eve, these two brothers, Cain and Abel, one becomes a worker of the ground and the other a worker of animals. And some, through through, uh, some reason, they understood that they were to offer to God a portion of that which they had worked for. We see the beginnings here of the sacrificial system and the beginnings of the tithe that we are to bring into God of our first fruits. Abel, a worker of the ground, or sorry, Abel, yeah, a worker of uh, animals, uh, brings to God the firstborn of his animals, of the, what the scripture calls the fatty portions. This is the good portion to be sacrificed to God. And then you have Cain, a worker of the ground, also brings to God fruit of the ground to sacrifice to him. In this account, we are not told why God chooses one over the other. As we'll continue to read, it's going to be easier for us to surmise why God chooses one over the other. But we have the benefit as New Testament Christians of having the whole counsel of God's word and having another passage of scripture that speaks back upon this one and helps to enlighten our eyes. This is in Hebrews chapter 11, which Hebrews chapter 11 really traces much of the Old Testament story of God's redemption redemptive work uh, from one generation to the next. And it picks up after talking about God creating all things out of nothing. It picks up with the story of Cain and Abel. In Hebrews eleven four. 4, we read, for by faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous. God commending him by accepting his gift. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. So here's what the author of Hebrews tells us that we can then take to Genesis 4 and understand to be true. The reason that God accepted Abel's offering and not Cain's had nothing to do with the offerings themselves. It was because of faith. Now, I've heard people teach it this way, that, that, that Cain's offering and Abel's offering uh, were were different in weight because Abel was offering animal sacrifice, which is a greater sacrifice than, than Cain's, or because, because Abel's is said to be of the first fruit and, and Cain's isn't, that, that it somehow had something to do with the offerings. Understand, I don't think that's what's happening here at all. I don't think we should read this text and think that the sacrifice of Abel was better just because of the nature of the sacrifice. When we take into account what the New Testament tells us to be true, Abel's sacrifice was better than Cain's because it was sacrificed in faith. Now, we don't know why Abel's faith was increased over Cain's. The Bible doesn't tell us. We can attribute this simply to the sovereign hand and will and work of God in the life of these two men. But for whatever reason... Abel brought an offering to God that was of faith, and Cain did not. So then the Lord warns Cain, who is angry at his brother, 
who then murders him. Look at verses six and seven. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry and why is your face fall? And if you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. So the Lord looks into Cain's heart and sees this building anger, this building bitterness towards his brother. And the Lord speaks a word of warning to Cain. And he says, Cain, this, this thought that is happening in your mind is contrary to you. This, by the way, is the same wording that was used in the previous chapter to describe the relationship of man and woman because of the fall. That, that their ideas would be contrary to one another. And that's the warning that God gives to Cain. Cain, sin does not have your best interest at heart here. This anger and bitterness that is building up in you is not for your best. It is not for your good. Don't listen to it, Cain. You must practice by saying you must rule over it. He's saying you must practice self-control. You must get control over this anger and bitterness. Turn to the Lord and by his help be able to do well. But the Lord, Cain does not listen to the Lord. He murders his brother. And in doing so, bringing the judgment of God upon himself. So the Lord pronounces judgment upon, upon Cain while providing a measure of grace. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, this begins in verse eight, spoke to Abel, his brother. And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? And he said, I do not know. I, am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying out to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. And Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is great that I can bear. It's greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground. And from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. Then the Lord said to him, not so. If anyone kills Cain's, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who find him should attack him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Here's what we see after Cain kills his uh, brother Abel. The Lord pronounces judgment upon him. And in pronouncing judgment upon him, he, he, he tells Cain, you, you're now going to be a, a wanderer, a fugitive. And Cain recognizes this again in verse 14 and, and repeats that back to the Lord. I shall be a fugitive and a, and a wanderer. I'll be one that is separated from God. There's no repentance here of Cain. Cain doesn't turn to the Lord in faith. He doesn't recognize his sin. All Cain does is recognize the truth of the judgment. All Cain worries about is the consequences of his action, not the sinfulness of it, not how he has harmed his brother, not how he has sinned against his God, but simply that God was going to do something to Cain that was going to be, in Cain's words, unbearable to him, that he would now be separated from his people and eventually someone would find him and kill him. You notice that Cain is worried about someone doing to him the exact same thing that he did to his brother. So we see judgment 
As we began last week, and I challenged you at the end of the service last week to, to read this text and to, and to work to find the, this pattern that, that will become so apparent to us chapter after chapter here in Genesis, and that uh, is sin, judgment, and grace. And we see the sin of Cain murdering his brother, and we see the judgment of God that God's going to separate him and make him a, a wanderer. But then we see a, a measure of grace, not the full grace comes later, but, but a measure of grace that God provides to Cain is that that he marks him to where he will not experience what his brother experienced. He is still going to live under judgment. He is still going to be separated from the people of God, from his family, but no longer would Cain have to worry about being murdered because God would mark him. Now, throughout Christian history, much has been written and said and thought about the mark of Cain. Can I just tell you, I, I can't land on any specific understanding of what the mark of Cain was. In truth, we do not know. And so in trying to guess what that mark is, many have fallen into error, some into grave error. The mark of Cain, as well as the curse of Ham in Genesis chapter 9, has been used by many to... to justify some of the most horrid acts on our planet. Often in history, the mark of Cain has been attributed to one race or another and have been used to justify slavery and war and death. And listen to me, while I can't speak with certainty what the mark of Cain is, I can tell you what it is not and what it should never be used for. There is no indication in this text or anywhere else in Scripture that the mark of Cain has anything to do with ethnicity, skin color, or race. So while this is not a common understanding of the mark of Cain today, we should recognize that it has been throughout history, and we should never return to that understanding. Because the mark of Cain was actually a protection. God marks Cain to keep him from being killed as he is a wanderer. Verse 16 uh, reaffirms that wandering when it says that he goes uh, east of Eden and settles in a land called Nod. The word Nod in Hebrew means wanderer. So Cain wanders to a land that becomes wander. It exemplifies his nature. One who has wandered away from God. But the Lord provides further grace, not to Cain, but to Adam and Eve through the birth of Seth. Skip ahead to verse 25 of Genesis 4, where we read, And Adam knew his wife again, because again, one of her sons is dead, and another has now wandered. And she bore a son and called his name Seth, for she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. So the full measure of God's grace is not in the mark of Cain, which keeps him from being killed on this earth. The full measure of the mark of Cain, uh, the full measure of grace here in this story is in the birth of the third son. That God did not leave Adam and Eve without a line, but that they gave, he gave to them their son, Seth. So now we have two lines that the Bible will describe to us the line of Cain and the line of Seth. One we will see by how it is described here in chapter four and chapter five is a line of judgment and one is a line of 
grace. One is a line that exalts man and relishes in its sin and compounds that sin. And another is a line that progressively looks to God for relief. So we will see these contrasting generations of judgment and and grace. Now, before we read from these two genealogies, I want to make a couple of uh, historical points that will help us in our readings of them. Ancient genealogies that are contained within the scripture, and these are certainly ancient genealogies. There are multiple contained not only here in Genesis, but in other books of the Old Testament and in the New Testament. And these genealogies were compiled with intentionality, often skipping one or more generations in order to communicate what is intended by the author. These two generations, the generation of Cain in chapter 4 and the generation of Adam and Seth in chapter 5, is a good example of that fact. The author here in Genesis has has used numbers to, to reinforce points, both in the creation account and in the account of the garden and in the fall, and that continues here. The generation of Cain has six, the genealogy of Cain has six generations in it. Six in the Bible is the number of man. It is the day on which man was created, the sixth day. It's, it's one short of the number for God, seven, completion. And Cain's generation, which is an example to us of the sinfulness of man, contains six generations. Seth's generation from Adam to Noah has ten generations, which is another number of completion, often tied to obedience. For instance, the Ten Commandments. We will also see after the uh, flood account that there are ten generations uh, from the flood, from Noah to Abraham. So in in the biblical genealogy, we have ten generations from Adam to Noah and then ten generations from Noah to Abraham. Here's what we need to understand And I think it's important for how we read this and how we approach the text. You don't need to be dogmatic that these were the only generations, these were the only people that lived within those generations. Often in ancient genealogies, including the ones contained within the scriptures, multiple generations would be skipped and someone would be said to be the father of a person who he was actually the grandfather of, the great-grandfather of, or there were several generations in between them and yet he still becomes the father of that person. So we don't know how many, how many actual births there were between Adam and Noah or even between Cain and where his line is told to end with the sons of Lamech. But here's what we do know. One seeks their own way and continues to wander. And another believes in God what God had promised by faith. So let's look at the beginning of these two genealogies and see the contrast that they start with. In Genesis 4 verse 17, Cain's genealogy begins this way. Cain knew his wife and she conceived and born Enoch. When he had built a city... He called the name of the city after the name of his son, Enoch. So Cain wanders away into Nod, east of Eden, and eventually takes a wife, and, and, and conceive, his wife conceives and bears him a son named Enoch. And the first thing that 
Cain does there in that new land is begin a city. Now, when we read, read the word city here, it doesn't have to be like city, millions of people, right? It can just be a town. But what does he do? He doesn't dedicate it to the Lord. He doesn't name it after something meaningful to God. No, he names it after his son. The six generations of the genealogy of Cain, which point us to the sinfulness of man, begins with Cain exalting man. Cain had not learned anything from his warning from God. And so... He exalts his son and names that city after his son. But turn over to Genesis 5 and let's look at the beginning of that genealogy. Starting in verse 6, when Seth had lived 105 years, he fathered Enosh. You'll notice Enoch and Enosh, the sons of Cain and the sons of Seth, very similar. Seth lived after he fathered Enosh 807 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Seth were 912 years, and he died. And you say there's not a whole lot descriptive there. No, we have to go back into chapter 4 to actually see the descriptor. Chapter 4 ends this way in verse 26. To Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. Now, who was it that began to call upon the name of the Lord? The scripture just says people, but it would have been people in the line of Seth. So we see at the beginning of these genealogies, the exaltation of man on one hand and the exaltation of God on the other. That one is dead in their sin and the other is striving to live a righteous life by faith and exalting God. Now, these genealogies progress, and we're not going to read every name within the genealogies for the sake of time this morning, but I want to highlight something that happens in the middle of Seth's genealogy. There's a hint for us contained right here in the middle of this genealogy of grace. It's in the seventh spot from Adam. Often in biblical genealogies, the seventh spot is is meaningful, and, and, and the seventh spot from Adam is meaningful here. We read, picking up in verse 21 of chapter 5, when Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God and he was not, for God took him. In the generations between between Seth and Enoch, we we don't have any descriptors other than how long the person lived and who they fathered. But here God tells us something about the person that is seventh from Adam, this Enoch, different from the one in Cain's line. The one in Cain's line had a city named after him to exalt man. The one here, seventh from Adam in Seth's line, walked with God. The Bible tells us. And he was not, for God took him. And in two different times, here in verse 22 and in 24, we're told that he walked with God, that that was a marker of his life. Now, you'll probably notice here in in the genealogy in chapter 5 that the, the men that this is tracing through are given these ages, and these ages are hundreds and hundreds of years. You'll also notice in Cain's there are no ages It's tracing something different for us. But here it's showing that these these men of of old, 
lived and fathered children and continued to pass on faith. So from Seth to Enoch may have been hundreds or possibly even thousands of years. And yet there was still trust and faith in God being passed down to him in, in, in such a way that Enoch was able to walk with God. And he lived for how many years? 365 years. 365 years. That's an important number, isn't it? How long does it take the earth to go around the sun? 365 days. Folks, some of these ages are not by accident, okay? 365 years is meaningful. But that's one complete cycle, one complete year that, that Enoch lived on the face of the earth, walking with God until God just took him. So there in the midst of this generation, before we get to the end of the two, we see that there is still one line from one generation to the next that are striving to walk with God. A hint that God is still at work within his people through the line of Seth. But then we see the conclusion and another great contrast in the, within these two generations. Look first at the generation of Cain in Genesis 4. We read, in, starting in verse 19, And Lamech took two wives. The name of the one was Adah, and the name of the other was Zilhah. Now just stop there for a moment, because here's the first thing that we recognize, that seven generations, six generations uh, removed from Cain, we now have the one man, one woman covenant of marriage broken. That in the garden, God had established between Adam and Eve that a man would leave his father and mother and cling only to his wife, singular. And while this may not have been the first plural marriage in history, it's the first one mentioned in the scripture. In the line of Cain, the line of sin, the line of judgment of God, we now have God's covenant marriage broken that Lamech takes two wives. Continue on. Adai bore Jabal, and he was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Jubal, and he was the father of all those who play the lyre and pipe. Zelah also bore Tubal-Cain. He was the forger of all instruments of brawn and iron. The sister of Tubal-Cain was Namah. So here we have the three sons of Lamech mentioned by his two wives, and those three sons each kind of had their own thing that they did, right? One of them dwelled in tents and raised livestock. One of them was an artist, a musician, played the lyre and the pipe. Another was a forger of instruments of bronze and iron. Nothing here is mentioned about their faith in God. Nothing here is mentioned about their trust in him and their dedication to him. What's mentioned here is their ingenuity, their culture, their ability to take by force. That ultimately becomes the hope of Cain's line. Cain's line, the hope of Cain's line was not in God. It was within their own minds, what they could accomplish, what they could do. That is still so prevalent today. We see in the world that our hope no longer is in God. Our hope primarily within the world is within ourselves. And so this is where the line of Cain ends with hope in the ability to farm, the ability to craft weapons, the ability to raise culture up above the need for God. Then 
in the middle of it, or at the end, we have this poem where Lamech speaks to his two wives. Look at verse 23. Ad and Zillah, hear my voice, you wives of Lamech. Listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. Cain angered his brother, killed him. Generations later, six generations here in the biblical text, his great-great-great-great-great-great-grandson is full of wrath and vengeance as well. And we can either read this as being something that Lamech has already done or as something that he is willing to do. Really what this text is speaking of is the hatred in his heart for his fellow man and his willingness to not rely on God for protection, but to take whatever life is necessary to make his own way. And he is indiscriminate in it. When he says in verse 23, I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. Here's what Lamech says. I'll kill children if it's necessary. This is the kind of hatred that has grown in this man's heart. That for his own security and safety, he's willing to take the life of anyone. That if Cain's actions against his brother was sevenfold, then he is willing to take exponentially more than that, 77-fold. His lust for blood is exponentially greater than that of his ancestor. So we see what happens here in the line of Cain, the exaltation of man leading to depravity. But there's another genealogy. Then that line of Seth, we get to the end there. By the way, another man named Lamech. Same name, entirely different outcomes. Look at verse 28 of Genesis 5. When Lamech, this is the other one, had lived 182 years, he fathered a son and called his name Noah, saying, out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. Lamech lived after he fathered Noah 595 years And he had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Lamech were 777 years, and he died. Do you see the contrast? That one is so wrapped in his bitterness and anger and and sinful nature that he is fully reliant on his power to accomplish anything he wants to the point of taking the lives of others. The other Lamech looks to God and says, out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. This Lamech believed the promise of God, that God would continue to work in his world, that God would one day send a redeemer. And he does, he sends Noah And we'll get into the story of Noah in the next couple of weeks. And and here's what we're going to see. While there's great judgment in the time of Noah, there's also great redemption in the time of Noah. Foreshadowing an even better redemption that comes in Jesus. You'll also see the number 777 in both of these stories. 
In the line of Cain, his, in his line, that Lamech says, my vengeance will be 77-fold, seven, seven, seven. And in this line, Lamech lives 777 years. The stark contrast between the two outcomes of the line of Cain, that which led to judgment, and the line of Seth, that which by faith, by faith promised redemption and grace. So what? Those who walk in the way of Cain will remain under God's judgment. But those who, walk by, those who by faith walk in righteousness find redemption. See, all these years later, there are still two different lines walking around this world. And this is not by birth, by physical birth. It is by spiritual birth. And you're either in this room today still dead in your trespasses and sin and walking in the line of Cain or God has made your heart new and you are now in the line of grace. The New Testament warns us about walking in the way of Cain. In Jude verse 11, we read, woe to them. He's talking about false prophets, those who are seeking gain from teaching. He says, for they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of of gain to Balaam's heir and perished in Korah's rebellion. Now, all three of those are Old Testament examples of people that led people astray for their own gain. And the first is Cain. Walked in the way of Cain. The way of Cain is the path that wanders from God. It's the path that exalts self. It's the path of greed and worldliness and revenge. It is ultimately the path that leads to destruction. Hear the voice of Christ on this. In John 3, verse 36, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. When Cain killed Abel and God sent him away to wander and to be a stranger, even though he marked him, given him some measure of grace, the wrath of God remained on him. Eventually, Cain dies, separated from God because he did not have faith. And as we saw in his line, just the continual degradation into sin and the exaltation of self so does his line. And that line continues today. And if that is you, if you are one who relies on yourself instead of coming to faith in God, you remain, Jesus says, under the wrath of God, just as Cain did all those years ago. Oh, but there's also great hope because this isn't the story of one brother. It's the story of three This isn't the story of one genealogy. It's the story of two. And just as the Lamech from Seth's line saw hope in the birth of his son, there is hope that we can find today as well. Go with me back to Hebrews 11 for a moment. Because Hebrews 11, after talking about Abel and his sacrifice made to God in faith, The author of Hebrews talks about Enoch, the one who was the seventh from Adam that walked with God and God took him. He says this, by faith Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death and he was not found because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. Now notice this, this is how he pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please God. 
For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Enoch did not please God because he figured out in and of himself how to do so. He didn't create righteousness on his own and bring it to God and say, look, God, here's my righteousness. Just like Abel didn't bring his sacrifice from his, uh, from his herds to God and say, look, God, here's my sacrifice and God be pleased in that. He was pleased in it because of faith. And it was by faith that Enoch was able to be counted as righteous before God. And it is by faith that any of the Old Testament saints were able to be counted righteous before God. That is the whole point of Hebrews 11. And listen to me, church. It is only by faith that any of us today can be counted righteous before God. So the question is, do you have faith today or are you still wandering? Are you still wandering like Cain, exalting yourself, relying on your own ingenuity? still dead in your trespasses and sin? Or have you turned to God in faith now, having the whole counsel of God's word, knowing that we look back upon Jesus and believe that he died in our place so that we might be saved? That he gave his life, the one perfect sacrifice once and for all so that we might be right with God. You either have faith in that and are alive today or you do not. And if you do not, you are, the, you are walking in the way of Cain, wandering this earth until the wrath of God is made sure in your life when you die and you go to a place eternally separated from him to pay the price for your own sin and your own wandering as Cain and his line did. But if you're hearing this today, whether you're here in the room with us or you're watching online, know this. The free offer of redemption is made to you today. That if you will but believe in faith in the work of Jesus, you might be saved. What good news is this? That from the beginning, there was a line of faith passed down from one generation to the next pointing people towards the promise of God that would ultimately be fulfilled in Jesus. And we now believe that same promise, just looking back upon it, believing that Jesus Christ, our faith in him, makes us righteous. It makes us new. It puts us in that line of grace. And by the grace of God, he offers that to you today. Would you believe in it? Church family, those who have believed in it, would you walk in it? Would we, continue to strive to, would we continue to strive to put off that sin that so easily entangles us and walk by faith in the righteousness of God, for he has made us new? Let's pray together. Thank you, Father, for this new life that you have given to so many gathered here, so many watching with us online. Thank you that you didn't leave us on our own to solve the problem of sin, but you birthed within us new life, bringing us out of one genealogy and placing us in another. Father, I pray for the man, woman, boy, and girl listening this morning, watching online, that has just been trying to make their own way, trying to get there on their own, would your Holy Spirit convince them in their hearts they will never do so?
open their eyes to the truth of the good news of the gospel of Jesus. Able to save in the most wretched of sinners. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.